Hello and welcome to the Spiritual School Bus. I'm Mandy Hecht. I'm an ordained minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and I drive a school bus. In Baptist churches and on the bus, it seems like everyone wants to sit in the back. You, however, are invited to take a front row seat on the Spiritual School Bus. Scripture reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-15. through 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testified that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the Lord's people. And they went beyond our expectations. Having given themselves first of all to the Lord, they gave themselves by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And here is my judgment on what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. May God bless the hearing and the doing of the word this morning. I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other people. That's quote that's often been attributed to in the most recent social media rounds to Dr. Anthony Fauci, but it actually comes from a journalist named Lauren Morrill. And if the Apostle Paul were around today, perhaps he would have quoted it in his letter to the church in Corinth. Though maybe that it's not quite accurate because Paul did in fact have a good argument for why people should care about others. And his argument is that we have Jesus Christ as our model, and Jesus definitely cared about you. This should no longer surprise us, because Jesus is Paul's message through and through. Paul routinely and relentlessly and rigorously made his message about Jesus. Pointing to Jesus was Paul's gospel, his good news, his best and really only message. And this part of 2 Corinthians is no different. As we've mentioned before, Paul wrote this particular letter as he arose or emerged from his very dark time, something akin to a clinical depression that he mentions in chapter 1 that he even despaired of life itself. And part of what led into his slide into the abyss was a breakdown of the relationship with this particular church that he's writing to, a church that he founded and pastored in the city of Corinth. He had stayed in that city 18 months as he built up this body of believers, But after he left, his relationship with the church began to deteriorate. And at one point, he decided to make a quick visit back to the church to see if he couldn't patch things up. But that visit went very badly, and Paul retreated back to the city of Ephesus, confused and hurt. 
Soon after that, he encountered trouble in Ephesus of one sort or another, which landed him in prison. And that is where he encountered this dark night of the soul. Eventually, he was released from prison. He made it through his darkness and came out on the other side. But the problem of his relationship with this church continued to weigh heavily on him. And that's what prompted writing this letter. And in the middle of the letter, he all of a sudden turns to this cringy topic, the one most people hope isn't brought up at all, but certainly not in the church, that thorny issue of money. And yet, true to form, Paul refuses to shy away even from this touchy subject and chooses instead to just put it out there. However, Paul does it in a very strange way. I should probably say early on in the message, I had the privilege of taking a three-day lecture series on this book of the Bible, 2 Corinthians, led by biblical scholar N.T. Wright at the beginning of August. And so uh, a lot of what I have today is uh, I'm quite indebted to him for what he has to say. He often has profound things to say, but there are some real gems in this particular lecture. And so this is what N.T. Wright has to say. I was and am amused, he says, that Paul can write two whole chapters whose message is, please have the money ready when I come, without once in 39 verses using the word money at all. He talks about grace and generosity. He talks about sharing in the work of service. He talks about abundance and lack. He talks about the splendid gift that we are administrating. He talks about a fine demonstration of love. He speaks of the service that you are doing for God's people. He talks about sowing sparingly or abundantly. He talks of the service of ministry, and he ends up referring to God's own indescribable gift. All right, Paul, we think, why not just come out and say it? The trouble, of course, is that he knows that they know, and he knows that they know that he knows, that this whole scheme itself has become controversial. Accusations have been made. Another Bible commentator states, in agreement with Wright, that money matters remain the single most serious obstacle to reconciliation between Paul and this church in Corinth. See, after Paul left, rumors had circulated uh, that um, Paul was only interested in money, and money was the one thing he couldn't be trusted with because he might have shady motives. So money was a serious stumbling block in this relationship. But Paul wades into the issue with all the innuendo and hinting and beating around the bush that a nervous pastor might bring to a stewardship stewardship Sunday message. So why does Paul bother to bring money up at all if he's trying to repair a tenuous and already strained relationship with this church? Well, what Paul is asking for is actually a cause that was very near and dear to his heart. He wasn't asking for money for himself. In fact, he quite pointedly refused to take money from this particular congregation, even though he allowed other congregations he served to support him. And that's actually one of the things that they used against him. Those who opposed him brought that up from time to time. But what Paul was asking for was for the Corinthian church to contribute to a collection that he was taking up for the churches in the city of Jerusalem. And this was no small project. It dates way back to a conference that Paul had with leaders in the Jerusalem church when those leaders agreed that he and, at that time, Barnabas should travel on to bring the good news of Jesus the Messiah to the Gentile world. But then they say to Paul that he needs to continue to remember the poor. And Paul reports that was something he was eager to do all along. But as Scott McKnight puts it, little did the Jerusalem leaders know that their suggestion would become Paul's obsession for nearly two decades. 
You see, Paul travels around making an appeal for this collection all over the place, to churches everywhere that he travels, to help him raise this money that he wishes to take as a gift to the hurting churches and Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Judith Deal states that this immense project consumed much of Paul's time and emotions over quite a long period of time. But when his relationship with the Corinthian church began to deteriorate, those who discredited Paul's character also most likely began to discredit this relief project as well. And that's news that Paul would have found crushing. Now, there were some very practical reasons why people might raise questions or even have suspicions about such a collection project, especially in Paul's time, because you couldn't just write a check or arrange an electronic funds transfer to this project. There are major logistical concerns about how Paul would safely be able to carry large sums of money over long distances without being robbed or having it lost along the way. And without modern forms of communication, how could people who gave to this project be assured that the funds both arrived where they were sent and were used for the correct purposes? So this presented Paul with quite a large logistical issue, but he was working on ways For instance, he wanted to have different representatives travel with him from the various churches so they would have the proper assurances that the money was going where it was supposed to go and it was not being wasted. But even though it was a logistical nightmare, Paul was very committed to this project. It was more than just raising a few funds. He didn't just start a little GoFundMe for a small trip. Instead, it represented to Paul everything that he believed that the Church of Jesus Christ should be. And Paul had some actually beautiful, even lofty goals and dreams for what the Church of Jesus Christ could look like here on earth. N.T. Wright says this, The church in Antioch in Acts 11 decides to send a gift of money to Jerusalem, where the church is beleaguered in poverty and facing persecution. A famine is coming and that church is going to be at risk. But it's possible to read Acts 11 and not notice how extraordinary this is that a community of Jews and Gentiles in a melting pot town like Syrian Antioch understands itself to be part of the same family as a community of Jews, um, Jewish Jesus worshipers several hundred miles away. It is that sense of family that is key. There is no pagan parallel. And that's what's going on when Paul decides, some well before writing the present letter, that Second Corinthians, that he needs to do a larger version of the same thing. He is aware that a crisis is coming. In Second Corinthians, he is persuading a lively and largely Gentile church in central Greece to send a significant sum of money to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, despite the vast cultural as well as geographical gap between them. So Paul has to go about explaining to the Corinthian churches that they should care about other people, even people who do not live near them or sound like them or look like them or who are of a different race than they are. Now somewhat today we have a sense of the fact that there are other churches out there and we are part of a wider church body. This is part of the encouragement that comes from doing things in common, like when we get together and support the quest, our church camp, or when we hear from missionaries or people about to go on mission experiences, or when we gather together for our world day of prayer, 
or even things like denominational assemblies, because they remind us that as a body of Christ, we are just a local chapter of people who exist all over the globe, speaking different languages, eating different foods, enjoying different worship and music styles, looking very different from one another, but we are all united in our attempts and desires to glorify God, sending a wave of worship from one end of the earth to the other. Sometimes those glimpses of how we, Worshipping here in Waka are just a little part of the whole family of God, though, are few and far between. However, and I'm quoting again here from N.T. Wright, he says this, The early church survived and actually thrived because they clung on, and Paul made them cling on to the vision of the church as the Messiah's worldwide people, the Psalms and the prophets had promised that the family of Abraham would be extended into all the world, and Paul believed that that was now happening. He saw his communities, rescued from idolatry and sin by the Messiah's death, const as constituted a new creation people by his resurrection, indwelt by God's own Holy Spirit. And he saw these communities as multi-ethnic, Mutually supportive, cross-cultural, prayer-based, ethically rigorous, polychrome and polyglot, kinship groups, gender-blind when it came to membership and leadership, outward-facing in mission, existing ultimately for the purpose of worshipping the one true God of all the world, revealed in his Son and active through his Spirit. This was a new sort of family, a new way of being human. Phew, <laughs> what a gorgeous vision of what the church of Jesus Christ can and should look like here on earth. And when you put it like that, you can definitely see why Paul thought it was worth bringing up the matter of this collection, even in these delicate circumstances where he and his collection had been subject to some character assassination. As Judith Deal states, with this collection, Paul was seeking to break down all the barriers of Jew and Greek, male and female, as an act of utter self-giving for Christ and for others. So how does Paul go about convincing the church in Corinth that they definitely want to be a part of this project without saying the word money at all? How does Paul go about convincing a bunch of Gentiles separated by hundreds of miles from the Jews in Jerusalem that they should care about other people, and not only that, but to care about them enough to commit their resources and to send money to help out people that they don't know and they're very far removed from in most senses of the word. One word actually comes to the forefront in this chapter, but it is somewhat obscured by some translation issues. And that word is a simple one. You've heard it before. The word is grace. To return to N.T. Wright, he says that the grace of the Lord Jesus was at the heart of Paul's vision for a church that was neither Jew nor Greek, but all one in the Messiah. And at the heart of this message here in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul embeds this beautiful verse, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In Jesus, we see the incarnation of grace itself. Again from Wright, he says, this is just typical Paul. When we just think that he is being quite practical and down to earth, suddenly he yanks back the curtain and hears the entire gospel story in a single 11-word sentence. Now, a lot of arguments can and have been used for why we should give our money and time and talents away when we could just as easily keep them for ourselves. 
And I'm sure that you've heard many of them in the various fundraising appeals that continue to come to us in the mail or online or however you get them. It's easy to shame people into giving. In fact, some people think that was a little bit of what Paul was doing at the beginning when he talked about the Macedonians and how well they gave because they were a bit of a rival to the church in Corinth and he was going, well, those guys gave a lot. Can't you guys pony up some too? But you can control people and you can tell heartwarming anecdotes or you can share statistics. Some of these are more effective than others and, of course, many people more learned than myself make a study of how to best appeal to people when you need money for a cause or a project. But Paul's approach, aside from that little uh, jealousy he incited, was basically this. When you give, you give out of an overflow of the grace that has been given to you. This is not, in fact, something new that we're discovering about our relationship with God, but something very familiar. In fact, something that's come up a number of times, even just this summer. When we studied the Lord's Prayer, we discovered that we forgive primarily because God forgave us. God started it, but when we pray that particular prayer, it shapes us to become the kind of people that God wants us to be, the kind of disciples that God is looking for, people who forgive. And last week, we learned that when you see the, begin to see Jesus the Messiah in the right way, that changes the way you see other people. No longer do you look at others through the lens of political parties or affiliations. You don't see them by outward attractiveness ethnicities or genders. Instead, we see them as the new creation they become in Jesus Christ. And here, Paul insists that we care about one another by giving generously out of what we have been given because in Jesus, God has dealt generously with us. When we love Jesus, when we join the family, we contribute to the love that God expressed to the world. God expresses his love to the world through our hands and our feet, through the opening of our wallets, and the giving of our treasures, grace upon grace. One writer says it this way, Paul reframes the whole collection as the gospel enacted, or the gospel in action. We put the gospel into action. We act it out when we give generously to others. Another writer says that we're given an invitation, but the invitation is not about moral obligations to pay God back or even to express gratitude, but to engage with God in love in the world. It is an appeal to love, to join God's loving. So how about it? Do you want to engage with God in love for the world? Do you want to join God in loving? If not, I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other people. But hearing this, reading these things, being reminded of all the themes that come up in 2 Corinthians, like we should be reconciled to one another because God reconciled us, being reminded that we are to forgive as we are forgiven. All of those lofty goals and beautiful pictures of what God's family can and should be, what the disciples of Jesus should look like, might leave us feeling a little bit short of God's ideal. What if we struggle with forgiveness or unforgiveness? What if we struggle with being generous? What if we can't quite bring ourselves to be reconciled to someone? As much as we'd like to, there are some people we struggle to be civil with, some we cannot quite bring ourselves to treat generously or to shake hands with, if shaking hands were still allowed. While you may notice that we have set before us the table of the Lord, and this is where we celebrate, we remember once again that this entire thing, this whole project is centered on the generosity of God toward us, which we experience through Jesus Christ. Barbara Brown Taylor wrote that in the Lord's Supper, 
And you'll see this in a minute. The minister holds up a whole loaf or a bun of bread as a reminder of the whole perfect presence of God among God's people. But then that loaf is shattered, broken, torn, and the crumbs fall onto the table. It is a reminder that our perfect wholeness, that peace for which we yearn and pine, is not behind us yet, but up ahead. Wholeness is coming, but the broken loaf reminds us that it is coming not through what we're going to do, but through what Jesus already did. His brokenness is what one day will put our lives back together, whole and complete, relationships and all. And so it is to the celebration of the Lord's Supper that we go now, centering this entire discussion, this beautiful vision of what, in reality, we often fall so short of. We center that discussion in the love of Jesus Christ, in the brokenness of his body that will one day put our lives back together, whole and complete. We go to the table in confidence, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Would you bow with me in prayer as we go to the table of the Lord? We come before you today, Almighty God, with gratitude for all the ways that you have loved us, all the things you have given us. You became poor so that we might become rich. You demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, you died for the ungodly. We thank you for the riches we have, for the grace that we have, for the forgiveness we have, for the reconciliation that we have, because you, our God, reached out to us in love. And as we go to your table today, Lord, may we remember once again the love that is demonstrated here and the grace that is freely available. We come before you today, the one to whom all hearts are open and from whom no secrets are hidden. We ask that you would cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We ask that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name because we pray these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This has been the Spiritual School Bus. Thank you for listening. For more Spiritual School Bus, visit www.pastormandy.com. This recording is copyright 2020 by Mandy Hecht and may only be copied or redistributed by express written permission. Thank you and have a blessed week. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace, and opened the gates of glory that we who share Christ's body and live, we live his risen life, we who drink his cup bring life to others, we whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope that you have set before us, so that we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace.